Since I've joined as your co-host, we talked about the overall multifamily market a couple times. We also talked about local markets, like in New York, but we haven't yet talked about individual property developments. Oh, that's a great point. You know, and seeing those connections between market and property and property and people is really important, and it's something that great developers do really well. You know, if only we could do an episode on that. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to take a close look at the ways in which human impact can be at the core of multifamily development when navigating that complex interaction of market forces, sustainable business, and individual experiences. We're joined today by someone who does just that, Jamar Adams. He's the founder and managing principal of Essence Development, a social impact firm with the vision to combine government programs with private sector resources to build and preserve communities. Mr. Adams is also a mentor to young professionals and is involved in organizations committed to enhancing educational and economic opportunities. So, Jamar, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Corey. Um, looking forward to chatting with you. All right. And, and it's always fun to talk to the founders of innovative companies. I often see that there's a connection between personal experience and personal philosophy and the approach that a company takes. So maybe today we can start the conversation with some of that intersection, maybe just a brief summary of Essence first, and then we'll get into sort of how you came to form Essence, some of your background and how that plays into it. Yeah, sure, of course. So yes, my name is Jamar Adams. I'm the founder of Essence Development. Essence is a social impact development firm focused on doing affordable workforce and mixed income housing, while also finding ways and focusing our efforts on creating true impact, economic and social impact in our communities. We don't wanna be a developer who comes in and develops in spite of the community. We want to be a developer who is developing with the community. Uh, And that takes on a number of different structures. So that's a little bit about essence and kind of what Essence is uh, aimed at at this current portion of time. It's really exciting to hear that approach. And, you know, it's very much aligned with uh, what I think we're seeing as an emerging focus in the industry on this, you know, more like working with the community, designing with the community in mind. So, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you came to this and what experiences have led you to this approach. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I think that all our lives' passions are a culmination of all of our life experiences, exposures, I'm not any different than anyone else from that perspective. I myself grew up in public housing and affordable housing. And uh, when I was 12 years old, my mom had the ability to buy a house for $49,000, which I'm proud to say uh, today, I'm actually paying off the, the balance of the mortgage on that house. You know, so I bring that empathy. I bring that experience. I bring the history of me and my background as a young person, being around other young kids in those neighborhoods, hearing parents talk about that, hearing grandparents and cousins and aunts talking about the experience of living in, be it affordable or public housing, and the challenges that come along with that. And so as I kind of got my opportunities, uh, my opportunities didn't start off in housing, it started off in, in sports. The thing that kind of thrusted me out of affordable housing and, and kind of the neighborhoods I grew up in was athletics, football being the primary driver. Uh, so I had the opportunity to go and play football for the University of Michigan, go blue, and have the opportunity to go and, and, and play professional football 
Uh, and while I was playing professional football, I had an opportunity to intern and job shadow at investment banks. And that that ended up put me in a path where I was going to I accepted a job at Goldman. Goldman said that they would pay for you know 85 percent of my grad school. So I was a Michigan undergrad, wanted to go to Michigan grad school for, for business and wanted to go to the Raw School of Business and uh, met a guy who worked at the related companies, who was also a Michigan alum, who said, I think I can probably get you in front of Stephen Ross uh, for a letter of recommendation for the Raw School of Business. And uh, that happened a few days later and a 10, 15 minute meeting with Mr. Ross turned into a five hour meeting with him, Jeff Blau, Bruce Bill, uh, the executives of the company. And uh, I ultimately ended up accepting a, a position to start in their related affordable group, which is their acquisition rehab group. Under the advice of Stephen, he told me, you know, affordable housing is the most challenging thing in the real estate market. So if you can wrap your head around how to cobble together all the subsidies and structures and tax abatements, uh, you'll be able to uh, think around anything when it comes to real estate and development. So that was kind of the start of my career in real estate development. It was kind of a, a happenstance of meeting the right people that put me in the right meeting uh, that I happened to be prepared for. And uh, yeah, that launched my real estate career. So, Jamar, that's a very humbling background and a great transition into how you got into real estate development, especially from my perspective, uh, since I sit kind of more at the 10,000-foot view um, and working on understanding how multifamily trends are performing and how affordability, uh, especially affordability, has gotten worse over time. I think it's really opening my eyes is how your work and then when you talk about the community is so important. We can't necessarily see that at the 10,000-foot view, and it's great to hear about that in practice. Uh, if we can continue building on that, what does Essence strive for in your impact? So, yeah, again, it's a culmination of my past experiences as a, as a resident, as a neighbor, as a, as a son, a cousin of people living in affordable housing, but then as a developer, assistant project manager, project manager, you know, owner of, of, of that type of, of housing, I saw that there was a lot of you know, and, and great insight put into how do you finance it? Because it's not easy. There's a lot of challenges when it comes to financing affordable housing and the great work that Freddie Mac does really aids, you know, uh, lenders as well as borrowers and sponsors in getting it accomplished. But that's only one piece of the puzzle. There's another piece of the puzzle, which is the actual lived experience. And someone's home is sacred to them. And to walk into a development, walk into a project and understand the sacredness of a home and therefore treat the house and treat the home in that manner as it being sacred. But then trying to say, OK, not only are we going to put the respect level uh, on the house, on the owner, uh, on your experience in the home, that everything has to work. You know, your, your heating has to work. Hot water has to work. Cooling has to work. You know, all the building systems have to function correctly. But I don't think that's enough. What I started to see was I would walk into communities and remember the community myself and see people living in housing. Sometimes the housing didn't have the systems working and, and that obviously has to be corrected and fixed, which we obviously do. But there had to be more there. You had to breathe into those communities hope. You had to give opportunity. You had to provide ample resources uh, so that those uh, families that live there could grasp hold of those opportunities. And when someone grasps an opportunity and grasps resources and actually makes something of it, that's what starts to breathe hope. And hope is what I believe a lot of us need uh, in this world. We need to believe there's something more than our current situation. That's what allows us to work hard. 
that's what allows us to give to other people and think about other people because we don't think we're stagnant where we are. We are going somewhere and that somewhere is special. So that somewhere is great. And so what we started to do was I started to do a lot of research on how do you provide opportunities for people and families that would get them, if they were in poverty, get them uh, where they were out of poverty. And then not only just out of poverty, but they were out of poverty consistently. A lot of people, statistically, I know a few years ago, the statistics statistic said that roughly 40 some odd percent of people got out of poverty uh, every two years and about 50, uh, about 70 percent of them returned back into poverty within two years. Um, so why was that the case? The case was because they didn't have ample resources and in some cases wraparound services. And so we started to focus at Essence. Before I started, as I said, I did the research and said, what do they need? Seems like the data says that uh, families need access to nutritional foods, which also affects the health care and affordable foods. They need access to quality health care at affordable prices. They needed access to quality education and they needed access to workforce training and income mobility. And so those are our four key pillars. We also add to those four key pillars that we want to have sustainable housing. So we have sustainability as one of our pillars. And our final pillar is connectivity. And so that kind of bred out of the sense of building around infrastructure, building around jobs, building around transportation so people could get to and fro from their home to where they could work at affordable prices. And then connectivity also layers into that Wi-Fi, broadband, at either affordable or free prices. And so those are our six pillars that we focus on. And we believe that the data shows, the research shows, and the practical application shows that when families have access to affordable nutritional foods, affordable health care, affordable education, and workforce training opportunities, they have the ability to thrive. And when they begin to thrive, hope begins to breathe not only into them, but into their families and into their communities. And so, yes, those are some of the things that we focus on when we're uh, working on a project, designing a project, uh, or thinking about an acquisition. What you just talked about is is a very comprehensive and thorough way of, of thinking of this, right? And what strikes me is you know, many of the pieces that you're focused on right, have been focused on at different points in time when you think of the history of development, but it feels like now we're bringing all those pieces together at the same time, right? It's gaining more attention and more focus. And that's especially challenging, I would think, now, right, given today's market environment. So how do you bring these concepts into practice at your properties when you think about affordable health care and food? How do you bring these disparate programs together at the properties for the residents? Yeah, Corey, great question. It all depends. Each property is different. And what we don't try to do is we have the pillars because they give us the North Star. Uh, they give us our guide and light, the things that we're trying to accomplish. But what we don't do is we don't try to create a cookie color model that we then apply to every site. Every site, every neighborhood, every community, every location is different. The not-for-profits are different. The exact need of the resident base is different. The resident base is different. Uh, and so what we do is we take those six pillars in the four in particular, and we go into the site, if, let's say if it's an acquisition. Uh, so we're right now closing a transaction with Freddie Mac in Toledo, Ohio, 165 units of senior and disabled housing. Uh, so what we did was, uh, as we signed PSA, we went into the property. We were doing all our real estate due diligence, but we were also sitting down with the residents and resident leaders. 
what we typically do is, particularly when it's an existing uh, community there, we create three working groups uh, or working committees. Uh, one committee is design and construction, because I recall the feeling of when someone would come into your building and change out cabinets or change out appliances, you didn't have a say. It didn't feel like it was your home because they're doing what they want to do in your home. What we take the approach is we have a design and construction committee where within the budget, within the scope of work that we have, we provide options to that committee and say, hey, you guys pick kitchen cabinet colors and the the, the appliance types and you guys pick the, the color of the flooring and you guys pick the amenity spaces is where we're doing amenity spaces, what you ultimately get. So we allow them to be a part of the process. Again, that, that helps build that community. It helps build the it's not they are doing something in our neighborhood or they're doing something in our building. We are. Uh, we have management and security. So we do the same thing on the management security side. And then we have community engagement and social services. And so that community engagement social service team, really, we draw out of them a lot of these four pillars. So we say to them, hey, we survey them. So we go and sit down with them in their homes. We find out what each individual home's needs are. Uh, we collect data. You know, what are you concerned about? You're concerned about security, food insecurities, health programs for seniors, entertainment for seniors. So we, we ask a various amount of questions and we use that data to then go back to the community engagement social service committees and say, OK, guys, this is what it seems like you guys are saying. Is that accurate? And they, they affirm or they say, no, it's a little different. And then once they do that, then we go out into the community and find the not-for-profits. And sometimes they tell us, we want to work with this group. You know, my, my sister lives over at this building and, and they're doing some great stuff there. We would love for them to be doing here. Then we go out and find the not-for-profits in acquisition sites. And we bring those not-for-profits in and we say, okay, hey, look, here's space. We're going to design space for you. You know, here's a, a working schedule where you can come in on these days and times. And we bring those groups there, be it a healthcare provider, be it uh, workforce training. And sometimes we're dealing with seniors. It's not really hyper focused on workforce training because a lot of them have retired. But it may be far more focused on nutritional foods, maybe far more focused on engaging them in things that the, they feel like they're learning. They feel like their brain is still being active and they're still being useful in the community. And so we do those things like that in, in sites where there's an existing uh, residency. On bigger sites with a new construction, we have those same pillars. We create those same committees uh, with community organizations. And we ask those community organizations, what do you guys think you need? You've been in this community serving already, some not-for-profits, you guys have been doing some phenomenal work. What do you think needs to be added here? How can we emphasize, how can we magnify some of the good work that's already been done? But then also how we bring uh, to bear some of the other things that may be needed. And we do a very similar exercise with those community organizations, not-for-profits, that we do with the residents. So at the end of the day, again, we end up with a place where it is not they are doing in our community, it's we're doing in our community. And then what the, I would say the final piece of that is we work with organizations like True Impact and SOPAC, where we track that, you know, we track the impact. My saying is we don't want to be known for giving away turkeys and book bags, though that is something that's helpful that doesn't move the needle necessarily. And so we want to track meaningful uh, items like at one property, a senior property, the majority of those families of uh, seniors, when they get ill, they go directly to the emergency room. So if you look and track their engagement with health in the healthcare center system. It is always their emergency room because they don't do any current and consistent care. So 
in, in the cases of those places, what we try to do is we try to eliminate their first time care being at the emergency room, and we try to make it something very consistent. Uh, how do we do that? We bring in a healthcare not-for-profit in some cases. We bring them in two to three days a week. We have that healthcare not-for-profit provide food, and we we pay for some of that food that gets brought to the site. So it, you know it, it reduces uh, food insecurities, but also gives them healthy food options, which we understand will help their healthcare outcomes. And then we create uh, events, bingo nights, movie nights, you know, things of that nature, where the seniors are just engaging in things that is helpful for them, but they're also being engaged by the nurse practitioners or the, or the not-for-profit service that's there asking them questions and looking, you know, looking over them. So if the, if the nurse practitioner or the healthcare organization sees something that's a little different by about Ms. Johnson, she's got a limp, Hey, Ms. Johnson, how you doing? Look like you got a lip going on there. Uh, what's going on? And, and it's because they're not, it's not a health setting. It's a, you know, it's kind of a community setting. Ms. Johnson is a little bit more apt to share what's really going on. And so therefore, uh, that organization can start to address any issues that Ms. Johnson may have uh, before it becomes a situation where, oh, we found out Ms. Johnson had a sore on her hip. That sore got infected. That infection now requires her to go to the emergency room where she has to be on a, a seven-day cycle of antibiotics. We've been able to stop that process where we're able to get her to her doctor, get her with a cream so it doesn't get infected. It gets bandaged up appropriately. We make sure she's treating that bandage appropriately so it doesn't end up in a situation. And we track that data so that now at the end of the year, we see Ms. Johnson didn't go to the emergency room at all because there was a couple of different events where we were able to address something before it got to that place. And now the healthcare system as a whole is spending less money addressing healthcare issues for people like Ms. Johnson. But as you scale something like that across the property or across multiple properties you're doing it at, uh, you start seeing a true impact. And then ultimately, we have the ability to tune it because when you're really tracking the data, you can see very clearly, oh, we're still getting a whole bunch of people going to the emergency room. So now you're able to say something we're doing is not working as well as we like. And so you're able to tune it to say, well, we need to start doing more programming. We need an additional person. We need to start to do in-home business potentially with certain people. So you have the ability to tune it to ultimately come up with the outcomes that you're really solving for. And then once you have the ability to do that, start for the and then and then. But once you have the ability to do that, you now have the ability to then go out to some bigger not-for-profits and say, hey, look, we spent first dollars. We spent first resources addressing some of these problems. Look at the impact we've had. Look at the data, right? And based on the data, we're going to ask you, we put in the first $15,000, $20,000. We'll ask that you match or you give us $50,000. So now we can scale the service and start to do more with the property than what we were previously doing. And that's in a healthcare setting, but that could apply in the nutritional food setting. That can apply in the education setting. That can apply in the workforce training and income ability setting. So... That, that's a little bit of an example of kind of what we do, how we focus, and how detailed we try to get to then ultimately be impact-focused and impact-driven. That's really tremendous. And I like that individual impact and systemic impact are really coming together. And you know, it's really exciting to hear about that. You, know, you mentioned the, the property you had in Toledo before. So curious, tell me, tell me a little bit more about the markets that you're in. Do you see any sort of geographic differences in the types of services that you're providing or challenges working in different markets? And you know, how does that come into play? I would say that the more dense, so, so some of the markets we're in, we're in, um, we're in the Ohio market. We have a couple projects in, in Ohio. We're in the Illinois market, primarily Chicago for Illinois. 
uh, we're definitely in New York City and, and the kind of metropolitan area. So Newark, New Jersey, New York City, and Westchester County, et cetera. Um, but we're also in Philadelphia. And so for us, what I've seen about the services is the more densely of a population or area you're in, uh, the more concentrated the services are. And therefore, there, there typically is more resources and more options for resources to then bring to bear, which is always kind of the ideal scenario. Uh, you don't really want to be forced to use only one group, because if that group doesn't have the ability to update what they're doing or be slightly different, they want, if they take a cookie cutter approach to their, their service plan, it can be very challenging to, to, to tune, right? But in some of the more dense urban markets, New York City, Philadelphia, uh, Newark, there's a lot more not-for-profits around, or a lot more organization, community organizations around, church groups, et cetera, who, if it's not going the way you want it to with one group and you're not able to you know, change or, or amend what, what you're doing with them as well, you can pivot to another group. And so uh, you see a little bit more flexibility in the big urban markets. But the quality, I would say this, in the more suburban markets, you see people and groups of people who very much so care. They do a lot with a little, and they're they're hyper concerned about the, uh, the 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 group of people that they work with, and they are very focused on 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 results. Sometimes they just don't have the resources to to be as flexible as as you may need them to be, or as the site more appropriately needs them to be. So you know those are the markets we're in, and we're growing. We're looking at other opportunities, primarily for acquisitions, uh, kind of across the country. But if it's for ground up development, we're a little more East Coast focused from from Boston down to D.C., where where I can get on a train or our team can get on a train or a plane and easily make a day trip uh, so that if something comes up under a construction plan, we can get down there for two or three days and then come back. So that's kind of locationally where we are right now. And so when you think about the different kinds of geographies or even municipalities, um, and especially those that you've uh, worked with and what you've learned from those nonprofits and the evolutions working with them. What are your thoughts on the scalability of this going forward? Well, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for scalability. There's a lot of not-for-profits in those locations that are have great teams, are ready to grow, uh, need the opportunity. But I think more importantly, there's some big foundations. I, I, I think about you know what we're trying to do. We need to master the three Ps. It is public, it is private, it is philanthropic. And for us, we try to take the first step. And as we take the first step, we can now walk to the philanthropic space with your you know, Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, with the Kellogg Foundation, other organizations like that. And we say, hey, look, you know, on some of the bigger projects, hey, we've spent the first $500,000. Can you guys give us 250? Can you guys match the 500,000 with another 500,000? And now you're really scaling that. And, and if you are working with great community organizations, uh, they are obviously not just serving your, your residents and your development. The dollars are going to them. They're not coming to the property. And so, you know, as that community organization is getting you know, an additional $500,000 a year, they're able to scale what they're doing across right, a broader group that's not just the residents that live in your building. Uh, but across, you know, a, a neighborhood, a community, I mean, some certain cases, an entire city. And so I think one of the challenges is that some of those some of those organizations uh, 
have been having a little bit of a harder time hiring uh, to kind of keep pace. But when they have the opportunity to hire, they are hiring tremendous, very, very passionate people uh, that are willing to kind of go over and beyond what the job description may be to, to, to produce. But I think the real key is we get so, you know, marred down and focused on the data sometimes. It's really the people impact. It's, it's how you're affecting people's lives. You have no idea what's happening while you're doing positive things in these developments uh, to give, you know, a senior and a couple additional years because their health is better uh, of their lives. You know, there may be a young child who's now inspired by their grandmother, their grandfather, and that young child now has hope because they're seeing the experience the grandparents going through. That hope starts to, you know, breathe and breathe, breathe into, you know, better educational outcomes for that young person. Those better educational outcomes for that young person uh, can spur them on to greater outset. And New York City, as a key point, New York City, I believe the information is that uh, to imprison someone in Rikers Island is $430,000 a year. So $430,000 a year, but to send them to one of the best uh, independent schools, quote unquote, private schools in New York City could cost you $60,000 a year. So if you did that math, it'd be a much more positive investment to invest in the independent school education than into Rikers Island. But we have to provide, we as real estate uh, professionals who are working with the not-for-profits, et cetera, we have a group of people who live in our buildings. We have a lot of data on them because we know what their incomes are. We know how many people live in the household. We know their ages. We know a lot of stuff. We're able to share that information in a, in a very private setting, with more than a group data sharing, not individual households. We're able to say, hey, we have you know 2,000 kids that live in this development. Their ages are between this and this. And we're able to start to draw in a lot of organizations and groups who say, we're looking for this sort of group to work with. Um, we're able to bring them to the table and we're able to help them you know, you know, scale, build, speak to, understand outcomes and results and be able to get that back to them so that they're able to tune to create better outcomes and better results uh, in those communities. So the human impact is such an important thing. I think the economic impact could be something tremendous because again, $60,000 a year versus $400,000. The $400,000 is what you're spending. The sixty is what you're spending. But what happens to that sixty if, you know, year over year over year, this person has a great education, they go on to a phenomenal uh, school or they go into a trade program. Now there's someone positive. You know, they're, they're adding to our GDP. They're adding to our economy as opposed to someone who ends up on a misfortune uh, path and track where they're uh, kind of, um, you know, in the prison system, in and out of jails. They are strained on the economic system. They are strained on, on, on our taxation system where they are costing money as opposed to generating uh, the GDP for our cities. And so I, I think about it in that holistic way. And a lot of not-for-profits, a lot of foundations and community organizations think about it in that way. Every group itself has a hard time actually standing in contact or touching the group uh, or the people they serve as they move on. And again, as a real estate developer, you have the ability to continue to say, well, you just had this care group of, of kids. Uh, now it's their parents. And, and now this happens to be their grandparents just by the simple fact that you're a houseman and, and uh, you have that information. We in the industry, we have a tremendous opportunity to really make that kind of investment and have that kind of impact. And, you know, we've been talking about what the human connection uh, part of this is and, and inspiring hope. There's another part that I, I think of as also being helpful to inspiring hope, and that's the design of the built environment. You do a lot of new construction. You do a lot of really innovative work. So I'd like to hear hear how you think about design and, and uh, human impact coming together. 
Yeah, I mean, we try to be very innovative. We, you know, someone told me, don't start a new business to do what somebody else is doing. You know, be a new resource, be a new solution. And so, you know, we're a solution on the on the social impact, you know, uh, side of it. But we also think we are bringing new solutions or, or partnering, new, you know, groups to to bring new solutions on the on the housing front. So sustainability is a big piece of what we do. Um, one of the developments we're working on right now, we're working very closely with a mega wall producer as well as a solar producer out of Europe, where we are planning to uh, design. Uh, as opposed to if you had a facade where you would normally have brick and metal panel as a combination, uh, we are planning and designing a facade that has some brick or a little less brick, but as opposed to metal panel, photovoltaics or solar panels, so that then the exterior wall, which has to be on every building, as opposed to it just having a decorative design and, and having installation to keep heat in, we now have the ability to produce uh, solar power from those facades. And so, how, you know, thinking about how we use existing places and spaces on the building, on, you know, in the built environment to accomplish more than the original goal that, that we kind of originally set out for it back 100, 200 years ago when we built buildings, you know, we should be advancing all this technology. And so for us, we're really excited about the ability to have the photovoltaics on the exterior of this building, but that to then offset some, if not majority of our our common area uh, electrical loads. The entirety of the building is an electric-based building. The only gas in the building, or really it's not gas, but the only you know fuel or coal producer in the building is the generator, which hopefully doesn't come on because uh, we haven't hit a um, you know a negative part. <laughs> the, the, you know, haven't had a hurricane or you know, power outage or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to have an all-electric building. Uh, to have a building effectively you know, meeting all passive house uh, standards and to have a, build- a building that uh, not only has a, a working facade, but that working facade is now generating solar power uh, that is offsetting the load generated by the common areas in the building. That's a really tremendous thing. Um, and we're so excited about uh, when that product is done and then, you know, providing the data to the, to, to the industry to say, hey, look, you know, we did it here. It looks amazing. You know, we're encouraging everyone else to kind of follow suit as we try to lower our carbon footprint on our buildings and hopefully create a model that other people can you know, mirror or, or, or add up you know, to, to adapt. I think that that all sounds wonderful. And just hearing about uh, how you're not just creating a housing unit for a family, but that you're really focused on the overall community and that well-being and that those numbers you gave us on Rikers Island versus education are pretty astounding. Uh, and, and especially, it's kind of instilling that idea of hope in the community and with the sustainability features that's really becoming the forefront of a lot of our minds. It's really great to kind of hear about how all of that plays together. Um, and just maybe thinking into the future a little bit, what what's your goals or the future development plans for Essence? Well, I would say, um, just to touch one more time on the on the you said hope and it reminded me when you're talking about design, but on the hope front of design, one of the things that we do is that uh, we, I'm proud to say we've encouraged a lot of other developers to do this and very excited some of them are doing it. I started a program when I was a related where uh, all of our affordable housing buildings, we, we actually curate art and we work with local artists to curate. So we're able to pay them some money, but they uh, curated a, a very nice art 
palette for our community facilities, or excuse me, our, our commu uh, community space, lobbies, you know, playrooms, you know, gyms, et cetera. So there's additional dollars going in the community, again, making it a community development. But it also, we, we put a tag on the end of that. We say, well, at least twice a year, you artists who we paid to do this, you got to come in and spend time with our kids or seniors doing art programs. And so we've had some great art programs in that way. But I, you know, I think art and culture really um, speaks to the soul. Uh, it can brighten soul. It can give us a way to uh, express ourselves. Uh, and so I love art in, in the building I live in. I love art in my own personal apartment. I look on the walls and it inspires me. It gives a little light to the day. And so same thing, having that in, in, in some of these developments is a part of giving that hope, part of giving that inspiration, a part of you know, giving more resources for education and, 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 and learning is uh, when it comes to that 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 side of, of art and what have you. So you know, really excited about that. And where do we go here from here, uh, Essence? We want to continue to grow. Uh, we want to continue to bring on phenomenal people who are extremely passionate about the mission of, of creating great impact for people while doing it in an economically feasible way. We're not a not-for-profit, so we have to make money. But to that end, we believe how we do have development with the art, with the uh, sustainability, with the social impact and the other pillars that we're bringing to bear, we think we've seen a reduction in you know, some term costs. We think we've seen a more consistent uh, resident base of paying rents on time. We think we've seen, based on the data, that we're we are finding families who are starting to breathe in that hope because they are seeing their incomes go up in some cases. They're seeing their health improve. They're seeing their kids do more productive things. And therefore, they are a little less onerous on the site. They're a little more apt to pay their rent than not pay their rent. And so we're excited about that. We want to continue to record that, right? Working with universities and not-for-profits to, to get white papers written on that so that can be shared across the industry. But, you know, we think there's a huge opportunity to continue to work with public housing sectors. There's a number of public housing agencies uh, throughout the country who, because of Section 9's lack of funding, uh, has huge capital needs. We think we can be a phenomenal resource for them to work with them and their residents. We think there's a huge opportunity to continue to work with, you know, the traditional affordable housing, LIHTC and Section 8, and continue to breathe into those communities' hope. And we're just excited about, you know, continuing on the path we're on. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me is to be able to bring on additional young or, or seasoned, talented um, real estate professionals who not only want to do great deals uh, and understand the complexities of the financial uh, models and the nature we have to go through, but are really passionate about making impact on communities and people's lives. It's hard to work at Essence if you don't care about people. Uh, because we put that so much at the forefront of, of our organization. Um, so we're excited about, you know, future growth in that lane. Jamar, thank you so much. And this has been such a great conversation. I feel like basically over the last 30 minutes or so, I feel like you laid out the future of housing in America and the future of our industry and, and how we really need to, uh, need to think about what we're doing here. So really great conversation. Really appreciate you being here today. And thank you, Jamar. This has been a really insightful, great conversation. Well, thank you guys very much for your time. It's so important for, for me that we, you know, that we're doing good work, uh, but that we're sharing the work we're doing, not as a, a place to boast, but as a place to 
to challenge, not only challenge ourselves to continue to do it, but challenge others to, to think a little differently about the real estate. Uh, it is not just NOI and rents. It's real people's lives. And to understand that you hold a massive part of someone's life, their housing in your business should inspire you to, to do more, to do greater, to, to think about the family, to think about the humanity uh, that you are serving um, and to keep that at the forefront. And so I really appreciate you guys providing a, a forum and a platform like this. And probably more importantly, I appreciate you guys for being you know, great capital partners that allow us to do some of the deals that we're doing and being a phenomenal resource uh, for us and all of our peers. Uh, So thank you guys. The Freddie Mac Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production lead, Jenny Wynn, and our audio producer, Dalton Okolo. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, mf.freddymac.com backslash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.